Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello and welcome to Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, Trail Mix is the short format episode of our show. While our long format episodes explore one hiking trail in one national park, one park at a time, Trail Mix allows us to dive deeper into things we didn't get to cover in our long format episodes. That's right. And this Trail Mix episode is all about the science of grasslands. Okay, Mike, so what do you know about grasslands? I know that they are a protected type of landscape within the United States. Just like we have national forests, we have national grasslands. I know that there are many varieties of grass that probably encompass a grassland. Um, I know that there are also grassland fires are a thing, just like forest fires are a thing. End of list. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see what else we can find out today. This season, we are covering the trails in Theodore Roosevelt National Park. We would like to acknowledge that while visiting and hiking the land, also known as Theodore Roosevelt National Park, that we are on the traditional and stolen lands of the Mondon, Hidatsa, Arikara, Crow, and many other indigenous people. Among the ecosystems found in Theodore Roosevelt National Park, grasslands are the majority. But what are grasslands exactly? Grasslands are arid areas of land that receive limited amounts of precipitation. This limited rainfall means that they cannot sustain the growth of forests or trees, but they are not so starved of rainfall that the land transitions to desert. It is the middle ground between forests and desert, and we mean this figuratively and literally as grasslands often occur between areas of desert and areas of forest. Grasslands have adapted to their climate, specifically low amounts of rainfall. They are able to thrive with the rainfall they receive in the spring in order to survive through the hot, dry, arid heat of the summer. Every year, the grasses die and fade to their roots protected by soil and then return later in the year. Occasionally, trees occur in grasslands, particularly around water systems like rivers. And in the case of Theodore Roosevelt National Park, a small number of trees can be seen near the Little Missouri River. 
grasslands occur on every continent of the globe, save for Antarctica, which does not have the temperatures to support a grassland ecosystem. Grasslands make up around 30% of the Earth's land surface. In higher latitudes, grasslands occur near temperate forests, and in subtropical latitudes, they occur closer to deserts, creating the two main types of grasslands, temperate and tropical. Temperate grasslands include the North American prairies, the Eurasian steeps, and the pampas found in and around Argentina. Tropical grasslands include the savannas of sub-Saharan Africa and northern Australia. Let's dive into each of these. The North American prairies cover around 1.4 million square miles of the Midwest and central United States and stretch some into Canada and Mexico. The steeps are found in southern Russia and stretch all the way to Ukraine and Mongolia for over 4,000 miles. The pampas in South America stretch across about 300,000 square miles from the Atlantic Ocean to the Andes Mountains. While grasslands may appear less biodiverse, the opposite may be in fact the case. In a recent study that looked at grasslands as compared to rainforests in different sized sections, biologists found that in some sections, grasslands were more biodiverse than rainforests. In the article, Grasslands, More Diverse Than Rainforests in Small Areas, Dave Mosher explains... Quote, at large scales, tropical rainforests were more diverse. A rainforest in Ecuador, for example, holds the record for an area of 2.5 acres with 942 species of plants and animals. Meanwhile, a Costa Rican rainforest won the 1,075 square foot category with 233 different plant species. Tropical rainforests hog most of the species-rich limelight because their canopies often reach more than 165 feet above the forest floor. That's a lot of area for species to flock. But height isn't everything when it comes to the species richness of vascular plants. A group including ferns, flowering plants, which encompass grasses and most trees, conifers, club mosses, and more. End quote. Grasslands support so many species of plants and animals. In the African savanna, the grasslands support the lives of giraffe, wildebeest, gazelles, and zebras. Okay, let's talk about Lion King for a moment. Zebras. <laughs> Zebras. Remember the part when, okay, so Scar has like taken over mm-hmm. and Sarabi comes to him mm-hmm. and there's that very weird scene between mm-hmm. the two of them. King Duncan, you mean? King Duncan? Right. King... It's it's Hamlet. The oh. Lion King is Hamlet. Uh, the Lion King is Hamlet. Is it no, Duncan? Duncan, no, is, Duncan no. is Hamlet's father. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going, girl. Um, no, um, Claudius is Hamlet's uncle. Uncle. Hamlet is Hamlet's father. They call him King Hamlet. Got it. There's Prince Hamlet and King Hamlet. So it's Hamlet Jr. Duncan is from Macbeth. Got it. He's the lovely, wonderful king who is killed in Macbeth by Macbeth. But yes, Duncan is the Shakespeare king. There we go. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Claudius, Scar. Scar. Yeah. Um... Sarabi goes to him and is like, the Pride Lands is what they call them, right? Sure. The Pride Lands are starved, and it's because of overhunting. You're forcing us to overhunt because mm-hmm. he keeps feeding all of the hyenas. Sure. Who like are at the end of the food chain or yeah, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's fascinating is, and we'll find out more about this soon, is like, if you remove one element of the ecosystem of a grassland, it's just like... Collapse. Domino, domino effect to like, you know, it's it's not great. 
Well, I mean, I feel like that's the case for many ecosystems, sure. especially if I guess it's more um, exponentially felt in a grassland. Like I'm thinking about the removal of wolves from Yellowstone, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that wasn't like super domino effect, but there were a lot of things that Certainly drastically affected, changed. Yeah. But from what you're saying, it seems like based off of our analogy of the Lion King here. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Things totally just fall to the wayside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you remove one thing, it's like, you know, I mean, there is a point, I guess, to their whole theme of circle of life. Sure. You know what I mean? Exactly. And I feel like it's very evident in a grassland. Mm-hmm. In Theodore Roosevelt National Park, the native grasses in the grassland include saltgrass, western wheatgrass, needle and thread, and little blue stem. They provide a habitat for bison, wild horses, elk, mule deer, and prairie dogs, and an ecosystem for insect life. These animals also attract predatory animals like coyotes and badgers, as well as birds of prey, including eagles and hawks. Fire also occurs naturally in grasslands or can occur through a prescribed burn in order to limit more woody vegetation and allow for more grasses to reestablish themselves over time. Fire also helps to increase the diversity of wildflowers that promote more pollinators. Grasslands have also played a significant role in the culture of indigenous people and their care and cultivation of their land. Controlled burns by Native Americans helped grasslands thrive and support a rich habitat for buffalo. These practices supported the life cycle of grasslands for hundreds and hundreds of years before white European settlers stole land and introduced ranching and farming. Surprise, surprise. Correct. (laughs) Colonization strikes again. In North America, roughly about 2% of the original grasslands still exist. It will come as no surprise to anyone that the greatest threat to grasslands and the plant and animals within their ecosystem is humans and human use, including farming, introducing new species, and hunting. The majority of grassland has been transitioned into farmland. This not only threatens the habitat, this also threatens the drinking water supply of the people in the area. And in the last 15 years, there's only been more tension growing in the arguments to preserve grasslands or develop them to serve the growing human population. This has only weakened the position of grasslands in the ever-worsening landscape of climate change. Grasslands also offer quite a resource to the climate change crisis. In a recent study of California's grasslands from the University of California, they found that grasslands could absorb more carbon than forests due to their ability to survive and thrive through fire and drought. This is also due to the fact that when trees store carbon, they store it in their leaves. Grasses found in grasslands store it in their roots. During a fire, a tree's leaves burn, releasing the carbon back into the air and atmosphere, whereas carbon is less likely to be released from a grassland fire as it is been stored subterraneously. And even though grasslands offer such a resource in their carbon storage, the amount of grasslands protected across the globe come in at about 10%. And in America, available grassland continues to disappear. Between 2018 and 2019, around 2.6 million acres of grasslands were tilled and plowed for growing crops. And in the United States, there are 20 protected national grasslands totaling 4 million acres only. A tiny fraction of what once was available in the Midwest and central United States. Okay, so let's talk about grasslands and how I feel like when it comes to grasslands, we're all kind of blithely unaware of all of the like positive good, benefits, positive benefits from grasslands, sure. especially when it comes to absorbing carbon mm-hmm. that they offer us, but yet people sort of just are like, there's no trees on this land. This isn't a resource. Let's till it and plow it, make a farm. 
Right. Well, it's not that it's not a resource. It's like, how do we capitalize on this as a resource? Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, I feel like we've talked so much about the water cycle and how specifically in the West, the water cycle because snowpacks are less and less, lead to more drought. It's creating a bigger problem when it comes to water conservation and the benefits of water for all sorts of things, people, crops, plants that are just within ecosystems. But it's interesting to me that grasslands are spaces where you don't need to necessarily have that much water for this land to not only thrive, but to be beneficial. So when you think about Yes, obviously, there is farming that needs to happen to work to serve a population, to work to enrich an area. But you think about all the water that's used for farming that are probably in areas where grasslands were typically thriving, where water wasn't important or as important to those grasslands. And it's like, ooh, you guys are just creating a bigger problem. You're actually exacerbating this issue, which wasn't an issue when this land was a grassland. Correct. I honestly feel like it's just like a matter of marketing. Like we people, I mean, I feel like we just sort of pass over grassland and don't recognize it for what it is and its benefits. You know well, what I mean? I do. I, I, But I also think that, I mean, I think that about national forests too. Sure. I feel like the world of national forests is fascinating oh, and yeah. incredible. And we as a people have like become so I mean don't get me wrong I we do this podcast because we love (laughs) public spaces specifically traveling in the national parks but we've experienced so many beautiful spaces that weren't national park land national seashore national forest national rivers state parks state parks and I think part of the issue is when it comes to marketing of a grassland is the marketing problem for all of these spaces that aren't national parks. People are very focused, hyper-focused in on seeing these spaces. And I get it. They're inc- these spaces are national parks for a reason. They're incredible spaces. But there are these other spaces that are there that offer so much, not just to the biodiversity um, of the area that they're in, but as a means to explore and experience the outdoors. And not that we've really experienced grasslands that much aside from Theodore Roosevelt National Park, but it was an incredible experience there for what we got. And you're right. I do think that there it's, I think it's also just a public conscious kind of thing. Like it's like a collective conscious, like this is a space that's, it's like you said, it's flat. It's not doing anything seemingly. Um, So let's doing so much. Let's let's bulldoze it and, and make it farmland. Right. It just sort of seems entirely available when I just think like it's easier for people to go, oh, well, this is like a forest that does so much and it's so rich and so vibrant and like look at all of this. Like things are up on the surface, but when it comes to a grassland, a lot of all of their benefits are subterraneous. And I do think if we're going to wrap this up with a nice little bow, this all just boils back down to education. (laughs) Oh, it does. Being um, educated about grasslands, what they are, what they do. Exactly. The sources for today's episode include the article Grasslands More Diverse Than Rainforests in Small Areas by Dave Mosher, published on National Geographic. The article America's Native Grasslands Are Disappearing by Arwa Nordawi, published in The Guardian. The article Grasslands More Reliable Carbon Sink Than Trees by Kat Curlin 
published by University of California, Davis, the Institute for Policy and Science, the United States Department of Agriculture, the University of California Museum of Paleontology, NASA, and the National Park Service. And now let's end this episode with a game. Are you ready, Mike, for our game today? I am. I made it really hard. Great. I'm kidding. It's not. This is an entire category inspired by um, the voice actors from the original Lion King. (laughs) Are you ready? King Duncan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go for 100. Also, Pride Lands. Like, how have the gays not just, like, created merchandise, everything around it? Who knows? Are we the gays to do it? (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it's very... um, feels very manifest destiny Mm -hmm. to be like everything the light touches is yours. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. But I do feel like um, if Disney really wanted to like um, capitalize on Disney gays, like they would have like on um, the boardwalk, there would be a gay bar called Pride Lands. And it would be a Lion King themed gay bar. That's really fun. Mm -hmm. That's really fun. I like that. Just saying Disney. (laughs) Yeah, on the Disney boardwalk. I like that. Okay, so... We'll call this category Pride Lands. Though. Great. For 100. In the live action remake of Lion King, Billy Eichner played the voice of Timon, a queer actor filling the shoes of this other queer actor who voiced the character in the original animated film. Oh, goodness. Maybe I did write Kryptonite for you. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of his voice. It's been so long since I've seen The Lion King. Um, and I know it's not Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> <laughs> because no, he that was would be the a very great voice the, of Jafar's parrot <laughs> mm-hmm. in Aladdin. Mm-hmm. Iago. Um, I didn't realize this person was queer. Oh, honey, he was in he was in the birdcage. Oh, who was Nathan Lane? There you go. There we go. You're okay. welcome. Sorry, it took. I like couldn't think of his voice. No, that's why I'm saying I like that's how much I didn't remember who it was because I was it. like, oh, it was a queer person. No, I did not know. Yeah, there mm-hmm. you go. Okay, for 200, this actor's voice can be heard as young Simba in the original animated Lion King, though he was more famously known by his initials and for shooting to fame on Tim Allen's Home Improvement. Who is Jonathan Taylor Thomas? That's right. Mm-hmm. For Shit. T- <laughs> What's that? Shit. This is his initials. JTT. Shit. Shit. JTT. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. For 300, this actor was the voice of Zazu in the original Lion King, but was more famously known for portraying the oft-silent Mr. Bean. Oh, this I did not know was him as well, who is Rowan Atkinson. You know what's funny is I know this movie very well, but I did not know that that was Rowan Atkinson. (laughs) Yep. For 400, Moira Kelly played the voice of adult Nala, but is probably more famously known for her performance in this ice skating-centric romantic comedy film, where she played a figure skater who must find a new skating partner in an injured hockey player played by D.B. Sweeney. What is Ice Castle? Oh, okay. So not Ice Castles. Ice Castles is a film. Would not call it a romantic comedy. Ice Castles is a sad, (laughs) hopeful film. I do not know the world of figure skating film. So what is the cutting edge? Oh, the cutting edge. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which could also be uh, the name of a barbershop. That's true. That cuts your hair with uh, a (laughs) ice skating blade. (laughs) (laughs) And for 500, this actor known for voicing 
the speaking voice of Scar, is a Triple Crown Actor winner with an Oscar, Emmy, and a Tony Award. Who is Jeremy Irons? That's right. <laughs> that was not a Jeremy Irons voice, but mm-hmm. no. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often, and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard, and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gaze at the National Parks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gaze at the National Parks.com. That's Gaze, G A Z. All original artwork featured on Instagram, on our website, and in the Gay Shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written and performed by Dave Seaman and Mariella Klinger, with Sean Sklios on guitar. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge, while recording this episode, that we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Ocean County, New Jersey. 